If I asked you, what is one commodity that we are presented with every single day of our lives? Sometimes we take advantage of it, sometimes we don't, but everyone can agree that it brings value and benefit to us. And at the same time, many of us struggle with it. What do you think you would say? Well, by the title of this episode, you probably figured it out, it's sleep. Sleep is sometimes aggravating, sometimes amazing, sometimes confusing. And I think it's definitely an under talked about topic. It's something that I've been looking forward to talking about for a long time. And I am very grateful to be able to find someone to co-host this episode who's way more knowledgeable about sleep than I am. And I really look forward and I hope that you will get a lot out of this episode. As always, we have this podcast really to try to help people who are listening to it to gain something from it. And all we ask is that if you do gain from it, to please support us, rate the podcast, share the podcast, throw a comment in there on whatever platform you use, and that will help uh, encourage us and help us expand and get to more ears. So without further ado, please enjoy. This is Mental Filter. Welcome back, everybody, to Mental Filter. And as you heard in the introduction, we are talking about something that affects everybody. If you are living on this planet, this affects you because every single one of us are built and designed to require sleep. However much we get, that's a whole nother story, but we're going to talk about what we know and what we don't know about sleep with an expert. I've been looking forward to having someone on. And so without further ado, doctor, if you can please let everyone know who you are. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. So I'm Dr. Jade Wu, but please call me Jade. I'm a clinical psychologist and I specialize in behavioral sleep medicine, which means I help people to sleep better uh, with non-medication evidence-based methods. Fantastic. And for those who don't know me already, Shmuel Fischler, clinical social worker. I run a specialized practice a bit north of Baltimore called CBT Baltimore and have this passion project of the podcast. So Jay, thank you for being here. So you said behavioral sleep specialist. Behavioral sleep medicine. Yep. Behavioral sleep medicine. Mm-hmm. So for the layperson, that means, so who, who comes to you? Folks who have trouble sleeping, whether it's insomnia or circadian rhythm issues, um, or people who, you know, have sleep apnea and need to use their CPAP, but they have trouble using it for whatever reason, basically help people to change their behaviors, change the way they relate to sleep, do whatever it is they need to, to have a healthier relationship with sleep. Fantastic. And we're, we'll hopefully get into to all those things that you mentioned. And I'm sure most of us can't get those CPAP like commercials out of our head. <laughs> but we're all familiar with that, whether we use a CPAP machine or not. Mm-hmm. So we briefly talked before about your own like journey to getting to sleep and your own even like family history of yeah. uh, being exposed to this type of work. Can you share with everyone a little bit of that about that history? Sure. So my father 
was slash is actually a sleep scientist as well. He worked for the Chinese Space Agency on sleep research about you know sleep during spaceflight for astronauts. So that's something I. Uh, you know, was exposed to even as a little three, four year old. And then I, you know, tried to do everything else other than that with my life. Uh, but then everything sort of brought me back closer to this. And now I'm a sleep scientist and sleep doctor myself. So yeah, and you know, sleep is something that I'm personally interested in, especially as a mother of two, I've gone through my ups and downs with sleep. And also in my profession as a clinical psychologist, you know, every patient I ever saw, uh, had some sort of relationship with sleep. And usually it wasn't, uh, the best relationship. So everybody, you know, had their skirmishes with not sleeping well. So this is something that is so pervasive, such an issue that I wanted to get into it and see if we can, you know, if we can improve everyone's sleep by 10%, you know, can we kind of change everyone's mental health? So that's why I'm here. Fantastic. I love the way you phrase that relationship with sleep, Mm -hmm. which we will get into. And I agree, we can try as hard as we want not to be like our parents, but (laughs) it's like this uncontrollable force. So before we get into, you know, that relationship and specific things that you work on with people, you know, for the average person, what happens or what ideally happens Mm -hmm. when we sleep? So when we sleep, our brains and bodies do some really amazing things. So for example, the brain will actually do some janitorial work and clear out toxins from the brain, build up from the day, and uh, literally keep the brain clean. The body does a lot of healing and, you know, repairing. So if you're sick or if you have an injury, a lot of the work of getting back to healthy happens during sleep. Uh, the brain does a lot of emotion regulation work too. For example, during uh, rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep to sort through memory, sort through emotional experiences, label things appropriately, you know, get rid of things that aren't important, cement the memories and the emotional labels that are important. And so, yeah, you know, there's a lot of dynamic body and brain things that happen when we sleep. And of course we get the rest that we need too. So there's a really a lot more going on than maybe someone might think. There's a lot of work going on. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, often people say like, oh, you know, I want to turn off. I want to turn off my brain or turn off my body when I sleep. But actually, when you sleep, there's a lot that turns on and there's a lot that happens behind the scenes, even when we're not conscious of it. So it's really quite a productive time for our biology. Right. It's interesting you say that. It's almost like ironic. I also will have plenty of people say, yeah, they want to shut off. Mm-hmm. Or they're struggling so much during the day, you know, I'm anxious or I'm depressed. And if I can just go to sleep, then I shut off. But in actuality, you're not shutting off. Mm-hmm. Brain, Although- brain is still going. The brain is still going, although I I would agree with that intuition that, you know, if I am struggling during the day, sleep is actually one of the uh, best medicines you can have, you know, for repairing physically and mentally and emotionally. We do really need that rest and all of the dynamic things that happen in our brain to, you know, emotion regulate and to, um, you know, sort of reset. Right. But is it fair to say, as with most things, you know, too much of a good thing that, you know, so if I'm struggling and then I want to sleep, you know, 15 hours out of the day, then I might be escaping. Basically, the question is, is there a point of diminished returns? 
Well, so that's a great question. It's a bit of a complicated question because it's not so much that you can accidentally sleep too much because your body will not really let you sleep too much if your body didn't need that much sleep. So really when someone sleeps a lot more than usual, that's really a symptom of something else going on. Either they're sick. So, you know, you probably have the experience where if you have a cold, then you want to stay in bed all day, you can sleep, you know, 18 hours or, you know, often when someone has depression, they also end up sleeping more or they have some other illness or disorder. So sleeping too much is really more of a symptom. It's not so much like you can accidentally get, you know, quote, too lazy and then sleep too much and then have that be a bad thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So is it inaccurate then to say that if someone is sleeping more and more, that in turn creates more lethargy and then, you know, sort of being more heavy and then more sleep? So that is that inaccurate then? It's not quite inaccurate because you then do get into sort of a vicious cycle where sure, maybe in the beginning, the too much sleep was a symptom of say depression, but then the more you kind of end up spending in bed, uh, then you end up having more sleep issues at night. Because if you sleep all day or take too many naps, you're not going to sleep well at night. And that's going to feed back into problems like anxiety and depression. And also that leaves you less time to go out and get sunlight and be active and be social. And so of course, as you know, that can feed into depression too. So it can sort of be a vicious cycle where sleep and mood and behavior all sort of are bi-directionally and tri-directionally interrelated, where sleep is both an instigator and a symptom, if that makes sense. Right. Which makes it, unfortunately, it makes it can be a frustrating process for people because it's not clean. It's not like, okay, you know, do this and don't do this, and then things will, you know, be better. It's layered. Yeah, it's layered, it's messy. But I think, you know, if you want to look at it from an optimistic perspective, I think this also introduces a point of entry to stop that vicious cycle, right? It's like, if we can just change maybe one thing about sleep, that might make your mood just a little bit better. And if your mood is a little bit better, then you're more likely to, let's say, go out and socialize, and that'll make your mood even better. So I think sleep offers a really good kind of foothold to get into that vicious cycle and interrupt that cycle. Right. You know, I've, this is more anecdotal, so you can say it more from more of an authoritative you know, place, I think sleep ranks up there as one activity or one behavior that to me has one of the most pervasive impacts in the sense that whether it's myself personally or family or clients that I work with, it seems as if it can impact such a variety of things. Not that other things you know, can't like if you don't get good nutrition or you don't get exercise or you suffer a certain experience, but it it seems as if it's like one of the most pervasive, pervasive, widespreading impacts on, on, I don't know. What what do you, what do you think? 
I totally agree with that. I mean, after all, we do spend about a quarter to a third of our lives doing it, right? Or at least trying to do it. So there must be something really important about sleep that our biology is so hardwired to want to sleep. And if you think about how vulnerable of a state sleep is, you know, you're unconscious, you're lying down, you're belly up, you know, you're open to predation. So if evolutionarily, you know, it was worth it to risk all of those things to sleep, then obviously sleep is very important. And so, of course, yeah, it is very pervasive in terms of its impact. Right. And would you say that it's underrated? <laughs> I think often it's underrated. Sometimes it's overrated. So it kind of depends on who you're asking. Okay. I'm curious now. What do you mean overrated? Well, here's what I mean. So a lot of my patients have insomnia. They struggle to fall asleep or stay asleep. And often they'll come in and say, I've tried so hard. You know, I have perfect sleep hygiene. I've like turned my bedroom into the sanctuary. I've spent a lot of money, you know, putting together the perfect sleep environment. I never drink alcohol. I never da, 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 da. So it's, it's almost like they put sleep up on such a pedestal that now they feel a lot of pressure and a lot of anxiety around it. And they feel like their sleep is fragile. So they're tiptoeing around, you know, sleep hygiene, tiptoeing around things that might disrupt their sleep. And, and that actually backfires because then that makes them more anxious, shine a bigger of a spotlight on the fact that they have trouble with sleep. And that becomes its own vicious cycle where insomnia begets more insomnia. So for these folks, I would say sometimes sleep is overrated. They think about it too much and they put it on too high of a pedestal. On the other hand, a lot of people in our society underrate sleep too. They will sacrifice sleep in order to study or play or work. They will not really take their sleep very seriously. They'll neglect their sleep. So in both of these kind of ends of the spectrum, I think is a good example of a unsustainable relationship with sleep. So on the one hand, you can neglect sleep on the other hand, you can be overbearing with sleep. And, you know, if we think about these types of relationships in terms of human relationships, neither of these is particularly sustainable, right? So if you want to have a good long-term healthy relationship with sleep, just like in any other healthy long-term relationship, you want to be flexible, but nurturing and understanding and, you know, strike a good middle path between overbearing and neglectful. Well said. <laughs> and to to add a little bit to that, if you're inflexible, so some people will get fixated on this is exactly the amount of sleep that I need, right? Mm -hmm. You know, everyone hears eight hours, but in actuality, not everyone needs exactly eight hours. Can you, right. speak, can you speak a little bit about that? And maybe some of some of the other sort of uh, myths yeah. and assumptions that people have about sleep. Yes, that's a really good example right there of a myth. You know, not everybody needs eight glasses of water a day, you know, depends on whether you're LeBron James or you're like a retired librarian, very different bodily needs. And same thing with sleep. It depends on your age, your lifestyle, your biology, uh, where you live, time of year. So many factors go into determining what amount of sleep you need. It's going to be different between people and it's going to change over time. So if we hold on too tightly to this arbitrary idea of how much sleep we need, like eight hours, then we're liable to be disappointed or to be too fixated and 
then we get into trouble. So that's, you know, that's one major myth. Another one is this myth of, oh, I should be sleeping through the night. I really shouldn't be waking up. Or if I do wake up, that means my sleep quality is bad or my sleep is getting interrupted. But, um, you know, if you had to guess, how many times does a healthy adult sleeper wake up during the night? Ooh, good question. I would guess three. It's actually something like 10 to 16 times on average. Really? What do you consider yeah. waking up? Well, when the brain does whatever brain activity such that if you measure the brain waves, it looks like you're awake. So we call it an arousal. When your brain activity goes up to the level of wakefulness, before dipping back down into sleep again. So most of these 10 to 16 are going to be brief awakenings that most people don't remember, but it's totally normal to remember like two or three or four times waking up too. But the problem comes when you place too much emphasis or too much worry on these awakenings and you start noticing them and start remembering them even when they're not so important and then thinking of them as a problem. And so, so the more you feel anxious about waking up, the longer it's going to take to get back to sleep or the more you're going to be in shallow sleep and feel like you're not even asleep at all, even if you are. So often people with insomnia will feel like they were up for an hour, two hours at a stretch at night when they're tossing and turning. But really, if you look at their brain activity, they've been up a few times during that uh, two hour window, a few times briefly each time, but their perception has strung all of those awakenings together. And now they feel like they've been awake for a whole two hours. And then they feel even more anxious about their sleep. They feel worse upon waking. And that puts even more pressure on themselves to sleep well the next night. And, you know, so on it goes. So, yeah, this myth of I need to sleep through the night can be too anxiety provoking. Yeah. It's OK Impressive. to wake up a bunch of times and to go back to sleep or to sometimes take a little bit longer to go back to sleep. All of that is fine. Right. So everyone listening can't see me, but I'm like the whole time that was <laughs> talking, I was like nodding and smiling and nodding and smiling because this is just, it's so on the nose and it's so true with like so many other things. There's the reality of what happens. And then there's the meaning that we place on the reality happening. So exactly. while we're awake. So if I am, you know, late for work and I attach meaning to that, that means that I'm not a good worker or whatever it is, mm -hmm. then that's obviously going to have a domino effect on a whole bunch of other things. Mm -hmm. So same thing here. Like it's on one hand, you're saying, well, it's typical. It's normal. Human beings wake up several times. But if I am applying meaning to that, oh, this means whatever. I am not going to get, I'm not going to have a lot of people say, oh, well, I'm not going to have a good day. If I wake yeah, up, I'm not yeah. going to have enough energy. I'm not going to be efficient. This means I'm not going to fall back asleep. This is not normal. Exactly. Now, I read in Vogue magazine that, you know, yada, 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 and this shouldn't happen. Yeah. So that's why I'm like, this. yes, it's, it's so true. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head right there. And that's maybe one more myth that I often hear is I will not be able to function well the next day if I don't sleep well tonight. And I invite people to just think about that for a moment and think, well, are there counterexamples to that? You know, are there times where I didn't sleep well, but I functioned well anyway, or I had fun anyways, or conversely, have there been times when I slept pretty decently and then still had a crappy day? 
you know? So once we really zoom out and look at all of the data, it's like, okay, it's not as um, one-to-one of a relationship of how well I sleep and how well I feel the next day. And then that takes a little bit of pressure off of the sleep too. Got it. Okay. Before we move on, any other myths that jump out about sleep? Mm -hmm. Oh, one last one. It, this is really good. Sleep hygiene. Often people will say, well, you know, if I have insomnia, I should double down on sleep hygiene, right? I should work really hard on that. But sleep hygiene is actually not the answer to insomnia. It's like dental hygiene. You know, once you already have a cavity, flossing and brushing is not the answer. So sleep hygiene is similarly too little too late, you know, if you have insomnia already. And in fact, if you double down on sleep hygiene and work really hard at perfecting it, that might backfire because then you're really placing a lot of emphasis and uh, shining a big spotlight on the fact that you don't sleep well and you're chasing sleep down. And I always say, you know, sleep is kind of like your loyal friend, but she's a very shy friend. So if you're overbearing and you're trying to chase her down, she's going to get, you know, like weirded out and run away from you. So if you're lying there trying really hard to sleep, then that's going to backfire. So sleep effort whether that's working too hard on sleep hygiene or lying there and trying to meditate the heck out of, you know, it so that you fall asleep, that's all going to backfire. Like lay back a little, or not literally lay back necessarily, but, you know, take your foot off the gas pedal on a sleep effort a little bit and go with the flow a little bit more and see if that might be more helpful. Fantastic. So you mentioned it already a couple of times. Can you give just a brief overview of what you mean by sleep hygiene? Yeah. So this is the list of good habits to maintain sort of as a general preventative or general good set of habits to have. And that's things like keep your bedroom, you know, neat and cool and dark and comfortable, you know, not drinking too much coffee in the afternoons and evenings, not having too much alcohol close to bedtime, not doing a lot of stuff in your bed other than sleeping, like doing work or, you know, being on your phone and whatnot. So these are the the types of things that people usually mean when they say sleep hygiene. Got it. Okay. Fantastic. Now you, you mentioned a lot of the possible negative impacts of if sleep is not going so well. This is maybe like a chicken and the egg question, because on one hand, if someone is has a tendency to be anxious or a little perfectionistic, then that can affect the relationship with sleep. Mm-hmm. But what happens sort of like the inverse? So if I'm not getting enough sleep, how can that affect my mental health? Mm, sure. So when you don't have enough good quality sleep, then everything just becomes a little bit harder. It's harder to think clearly. It's harder to regulate your emotions. It's harder to bounce back after setbacks. So basically, you know, just think of your regular day or your regular functioning, but carrying a backpack with rocks in it. It's kind of like that, both for the physical and mental end of things. So this can be particularly difficult for people who are prone to depression, anxiety, who may already have a mental health problem that they're struggling with, or, you know, they have a family history of bipolar disorder, you know, having sleep problems can bring them a little bit closer to having a manic episode. So things like this, you know, or even recovering from trauma, recovering from brain injury, basically, when you don't have good sleep, it's just everything 
is a little bit harder and riskier. We're, it's almost like our defenses are down. We're more vulnerable to whatever mm-hmm. we might react to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And we have less of a buffer when things do go wrong. The impact feels a little bit more raw. Right. And, you know, you mentioned trauma, which so I think it's worthwhile to bring up that when you mentioned like relationship with sleep, right? Unfortunately, sometimes people have an association with sleep with a trauma. So it could be anything from, well, when I used to get into bed at night, I used to hear my parents fighting, mm-hmm. right? And that's like an association or God forbid, you know, that's when someone was abused mm-hmm. uh, or they lived in a dangerous neighborhood and at night they would hear things going on outside or, you know, like there's, there's just so much like instability, you know, what's just, can you share your thoughts on when someone has that relationship with sleep? Yeah, that's a really good point to bring up. And all of those are excellent examples. And I'll give one more is that when folks have been in the military and they've been deployed and they've literally been woken up out of sleep with life or death situations and they need to go, go, go right then, then they really build up a type of relationship with sleep where sleep is literally dangerous or it's bad to sleep too deeply or you know sleep means that you're going to be ambushed. So yeah, those associations with sleep make that relationship really difficult and makes it I think even more important to repair that relationship with sleep and to nurture that relationship because you really do want to teach your body to feel safe during sleep again and to allow relaxation. Because what happens when you've been yanked out of sleep, you know, because of danger or abuse or, you know, these experiences is that sleep feels like a vulnerability and your body is hypervigilant and really primed to look out for dangers. So no wonder, you know, people have a hard time sleeping after these experiences. And I think it is possible to kind of reset that relationship and teach your body to relax and to sleep again. It, it does take some work, but it is possible. Got it. So for people listening, without getting like too much in the weeds, uh, we want them to stay here till the end. The, the <laughs> but can you give them like, just like a snapshot of like what's going on? Cause you know, I'm familiar with like, you know, the sleep load and what happens, hopefully what's building up, you know, during the day. And then, you know, at night, and so hopefully those match up and then you, you know, your, your, your body is at that prime. Can you just sort of talk about a little bit like behind the scenes, uh, what hopefully is happening, which creates an ideal situation for sleep? Sure. Yeah. So I think what you're referring to is what we call the two process model, but I'll say it in like real English terms. So basically you have a sleep drive, a homeostatic sleep drive. And you can think of it as a piggy bank. Basically, anytime you're awake, you are saving up coins in this piggy bank. You're saving up sleep drive. And once you've earned enough sleep drive, then you'll feel very sleepy. And once you've saved up enough of that sleepiness, you can buy yourself a good night of sleep. So ideally, you've been active all day long. You've been up and you know awake and doing stuff all day long. 
by the time you go to bed, hopefully you have a full piggy bank to spend on a good night's sleep. At the same time, what's also happening in parallel is that your circadian rhythm is keeping time. So circadian rhythm just refers to your 24 hour biological clock. Now us humans were wired to be diurnal animals, which means we should be awake during the day and asleep at night. So the circadian rhythm is working hard all day to keep you awake because while you're saving up those, you know, sleep drive coins, you don't want to be falling asleep every five minutes, right? So circadian rhythm is working hard to keep you awake, 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 awake. And then hopefully by bedtime, your circadian rhythm knows that now it's nighttime, it's time to rest, and it'll sort of get out of the way and let your sleep drive take over and put you to sleep. And then overnight, your circadian rhythm knows that, okay, it's nighttime, we're going to sleep, sleep, sleep. And then when morning comes around, circadian rhythm ramps up again and takes you into another day. So ideally, this is what's happening behind the scenes. Got it. And most people could probably guess what some of the things that get in the way of those two processes happening. So napping during the day, being up half the night, caffeine um screens maybe i'll even you could talk about that in a second of if that's actually true or not mm-hmm. uh, shift or work shift work yeah that's Exer- a huge exercising late in the day all those things well what are your thoughts on that or anything that i'm missing here that gets in the way of that well so let me give a little bit of reassurance on the screens and the exercising because i think there's enough to worry about i want people listening to know that it's okay to exercise in the evening, actually, we have more sort of updated data showing that, you know, like, unless you're, I don't know, like you're personally in an MMA fight, you know, right before bed, you're probably not going to be messing up your sleep by exercising, especially if you're like going for a walk or doing a yoga or whatever, or lifting some weights at home. It's not a big deal. Go ahead and exercise. Um, Screens too, not as big of a deal as we previously thought with the caveat that you should get enough light during the day. So the key is you have to have enough contrast in how much light you're receiving between day and night, because that circadian rhythm I talked about earlier, the way that your brain maintains that 24 hour cycle is by getting lots of light during the day to know it's daytime and not having too much light at night. So it knows it's nighttime. So if you are outside for half an hour today, like you know, walking or, you know, playing with your kids or whatever, walking your dog, it's okay to have some screen time in the evenings because your body, your brain still knows that there's a big difference between sunlight and like your iPad. So that's some reassurance there that screens are okay as long as you get enough light during the day. Now, the things that do really mess up that two process system that I talked about earlier, shift work throws a big wrench in there not getting enough activity during the day or like lying around all day will get in the way of that. You mentioned napping, which is a little bit nuanced too. So I'm actually a big fan of naps and there are lots of cultures around the world that do, you know, siesta culture where people very much take a nap or at least rest in the early afternoon every day. And that's okay. As long as it's like a relatively short nap, maybe 20, 30 minutes. And it's earlier in the afternoon. So not like after work, you get home and you take a two hour nap. That's obviously going to mess up your nighttime sleep. But yeah, an earlier, shorter nap is actually great. And if naps are pretty consistent from day to day, like you actually live a siesta culture, 
then awesome. But if you're haphazardly napping, like sometimes you don't nap at all. Sometimes it's a long one. Sometimes it's in the morning. Sometimes it's in the evening. Then that's liable to mess up your circadian rhythm and your nighttime sleep. So that's sort of a couple of caveats there. What else messes up that system? Well, can I jump on sure, what please. you said? So, you know, you mentioned shift work and you mentioned napping. And I know working with people with shift work, you know, part of it is really just the inconsistency. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, you know, there's people who have night shift work, right? But there's also people who have this inconsistent shift work. Someone mm-hmm. who's, say, you know, on call. Or I remember working with someone who's a paramedic Mm. and every couple of weeks, the schedule would change and it would be like 24 hours on 72 hours off, 48 hours on 36 hours off. And it's just like that inconsistency was really hard on many levels. Yeah. And then about the naps. So is this an accurate statement that, you know, I think that we've learned that you can't really make up sleep. Or on is the that very accurate too. I'm happy to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> on yeah. the very short term, you can. So, for example, if you had a really exciting long weekend where you were on a trip and you had a lot of fun and you stayed up late to hang out with friends, totally fine to do that. Please, you know, everyone live your life. You can very much like do a nap on a Monday and a Tuesday to kind of make up for it, you know, to help your body recover a little bit, catch up. But you can't catch up from the all-nighter you did last year or 10 years ago you know that's done and gone so does that kind of yeah I'm thinking of the people who say Monday through Friday Monday through Thursday are getting like not enough sleep for them and then on the weekends I'm gonna crash well it's in a way it's better to crash and sleep more on the weekends than to not and to continue to get not enough sleep. However, that is still not as good as consistently getting enough sleep because what happens when you catch up on the weekend by sleeping in or by napping a lot is that you're really confusing your circadian rhythm. So for example, if you usually get up at 6 a.m. during the weekday, but you sleep in until 9 a.m. on weekends, what you're doing is flying your body from, you know, Baltimore to, Los Angeles and back every weekend, you're jet lagging yourself by three time zones back and forth every weekend. And that is like a mini version of doing shift work. It really confuses your circadian rhythm and makes it harder for your body to sleep enough and to sleep well at night and makes it harder to feel alert and good during the day. Interesting. Okay. So I've heard and it could be incorrect that if you're trying to create consistent, you know, sleep quality and hygiene, then try to maintain the same schedule, even on the weekends, even when you don't have to get up at a certain time to try to still maintain that. Yes. And I know it's really hard to do, but you can give yourself a little wiggle room, let's say like an hour. So if you are going to be jet lagged, you know, each weekend, do one time zone instead of three, right? So usually if you get up at six, let yourself sleep in till seven on the weekend. If you still need more sleep or feel like, you know, you should take advantage of the weekend, by all means, take a short nap on Saturday and Sunday. But it's better to um, wake up at about the same time on weekends and use a nap to recover with more sleep rather than sleeping in in the morning. Got it. Okay. So I know it's for sure beyond the scope of this episode, but Mm. I know it's probably a very common question of how do we differentiate 
you know, between something that's actually medical, you know, a medical issue that's impacting sleep and something that's behavioral. How do you help differentiate? I know you can't list all the possible medical (laughs) issues, but what's something that you can maybe give people to give them a little insight into that? That this is a really excellent question because actually for most people, it's going to be a little column A, a little column B. So for example, most people with insomnia disorder have a comorbid mental health or physical health issue that impacts sleep and is impacted by sleep. So the common ones are depression, PTSD, or some trauma related disorder, uh, chronic pain, you know, someone who has gone through cancer and cancer treatments, has gone through other medical problems. I mean, as you say, the list is kind of non-exhaustive, right? So basically any physical or mental health issue can trigger a sleep problem and sleep problems can impact any and all physical and mental health problems. So it's really not a clear cut one or the other. Now, the question of whether it's a health issue versus a behavioral issue that maintains a sleep problem is often a health issue that triggers an initial sleep disruption. But then long term, it's a combination of physical health issues and behavioral issues that maintains the sleep problem. So, for example, you know, you might have surgery and that really messes up your sleep pattern, and that triggers your first bout of insomnia. But then by the time you've recovered from surgery, or your health is better, or you you know, something like that, a couple months later, other things are going better, but you still have insomnia for some reason. At that point, it's not the fact that you have surgery that is maintaining your sleep problems. It's probably some something else, like your relationship with sleep, your sleep patterns, the timing of your sleep. Are you napping? If so, how much and how long? You know, are you maintaining a consistent sleep schedule? Are you anxious about your sleep? You know, are you kind of putting a lot of emphasis in your mind on sleep and how does that emphasis go? So then a lot more psychological and behavioral factors are now in the mix. So usually when we're talking about chronic insomnia, it almost doesn't matter what triggered that sleep disruption in the first place. In the long term, it's going to be these cognitive and behavioral factors. I get that. I get that. But can't there also be like some like if someone has actually sleep apnea or isn't there a disorder where like the rhythm is off or something? It's like, um, I forgot what it's called. Yeah. There are different types of circadian rhythm sleep disorders, like delayed sleep phase, advanced sleep phase, you know, and various different types. So before what I talked about was more about insomnia, which is the most common type of sleep disorder, but you're right. Sleep apnea is its own whole new, um, animal. So sleep apnea is when someone has breathing interruptions during sleep. And that breathing interruption decreases the oxygen saturation level in the blood. And this forces the brain to wake up in order to breathe, because breathing is obviously pretty high priority. So during sleep, you know, even at the sacrifice of sleep, we have to wake up to breathe. But if this happens multiple times an hour, sometimes up to, you know, 30, 50 times an hour, that's going to really, really disrupt your sleep quality. And some people with moderate or severe sleep apnea never get into deep sleep at all. So their body never gets that chance for the real recovery and the repair that they need. Wow. And that's, and then sort of it bleeds into 
everything else. Yes, exactly. And that's why people with sleep apnea have a lot more risk for, you know, heart health problems, brain health problems, mental health problems. Everything is impacted if you don't breathe well and if you don't sleep well. Got it. Okay. So I have a number of like almost like rapid fire type of like different random topics about sleep that you know sure. I always think about. One of them connects with something you said earlier that, you know, everyone's different. Not everyone needs the same amount of sleep. And even that person changes, you know, throughout their lifespan. Is there any explanation for why some people, like even with my own family, I have some people in my family are morning people and they can get up and, you know, they're focused and they're into it. And some people who like, they wake up at like 1030 at night. It's like they're raring to go and like they're night owls, they're morning people. Is there any sort of explanation to that? Well, my theory from an evolutionary perspective is that, you know, for a band of humans, early humans to survive, there has to be some diversity in the crowd, right? If everybody dropped dead asleep at the exact same time, didn't wake up until the exact same time the next morning, who's going to stay in guard and look out for the saber-toothed tiger? right? Or who's going to get the bow strong for hunting the next morning, bright and early. So diversity in a population is always good for a species survival. So I think that's why there's variation. And you're right, there's variation in not only when people like to sleep, but how much sleep is needed too. And, you know, some people need six hours and they're great, but some people need 10. So, you know, it's, it's one of the things that at times has infuriated me. Like, <laughs> yeah, I got four hours of sleep and they're great and they're good. And like, they're, they're like, oh, that is, I'm envious. Like, that's amazing. But you say it's like some of it is like sort of luck of the draw. You drew the straw that needed more sleep. You drew the straw that needed less sleep. And that's just the way it is. It kind of is. Yeah. Although I will be pretty skeptical of most people who say I only need four hours of sleep. That's very, very, very rare. And I think there's a bit of a cultural component where we almost brag about like how little sleep we got, or there's something with tech bros and CEOs where they really love to say, like, I get up at five and I run a marathon and then I, you know, hit the gym and then I disrupt tech or whatever, (laughs) Um, where there's a lot of bragging about that. But I don't actually believe most of those people when they say they only need four hours. And also there are plenty of people who crash and burn after living like that for some years and they really do need more sleep. I get that social bragging, but also I have to say, like, I've known and met and heard even like stories I mean in in different communities so there's some people who are so I don't know what the word is so disciplined so focused on let's say I happen to be thinking of different like religious communities and they're so like devout and focused on what they're practicing or what they're learning that it's almost like there's somehow there's this like mind over matter type of thing where they almost train themselves And it seems very genuine that they function well on Mm -hmm. such little sleep. Hmm, That's very interesting. And, And I wonder too, if some of that sleep need is kind of made up for in other ways, like meditation, for example, like there are some communities that meditate a lot or do yoga or pray a lot. And there are some similarities in, you know, even the brain activity that we see between sleeping and meditating and praying. So, you know, maybe some of the like shorter sleep is made up for by more praying or more yoga. Wow. That is a fascinating theory to me. Yeah. 
So if you're getting some of those benefits through some other avenue, wow. Possibly. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's very, very, very interesting. Okay. Some more of these, like, you know, sort of a little bit, you know, random questions, smartwatches. I recently oh. got one uh-huh. uh, and like, are they helpful? Are they accurate? They love to tout about, you know, tracking your sleep and your heart rate and all that stuff while you sleep. Like, is it just like marketing? <laughs> like, is it? Well, so they are getting pretty accurate. The accuracy is improving all the time, except the sleep staging part is still not very accurate because the watches are all based on your movement and maybe heart rate variability, body temperature, but it, it cannot possibly directly measure your brain waves. So it cannot very accurately tell you what stage of sleep you're in for how long, but the amount of sleep you're getting, that's getting pretty accurate. But most of those data are based on healthy sleepers. So when people have a sleep disorder, it might be less accurate. And my general opinion is if you're a generally healthy sleeper or you just want to get some bird's eye view patterns, like seeing like, oh, wow, I'm getting a lot less sleep than I thought I was, or I'm getting more than I thought I was, or wow, every time I drink alcohol, I sleep a lot worse, you know, kind of bird's eye view patterns can be helpful. However, if you are finding yourself being too focused on those data, getting a little bit too into them, and you're like getting anxious, comparing yours to others, and like how, you know, your sleep score is determining how good your mood is for that day, then maybe you're, you're placing too much emphasis on those data to a point where it's not helpful. And in fact, there's a new term called orthosomnia, which really just means the insomnia that you get from measuring your sleep. It's almost like you measure it too closely and you've like, <laughs> you kind of like freaked yourself out and now you have trouble sleeping. So, you know, everything in moderation. Exactly. Well, speaking of which, you know, putting aside the general impact of alcohol, marijuana, and actually, you know, parallel to that is sleep aids. But we'll first talk about weed and alcohol. Again, putting aside the general impacts, what does it do to a person's sleep? So alcohol, we know pretty confidently is not great for your sleep. I mean, I mean, again, like live your life, you know, go and enjoy your wine with dinner and whatnot. But drinking and also, again, different people have different sensitivity levels to alcohol. But generally, alcohol makes your body temperature stay up higher and it disrupts your sleep patterns you generally get a little bit less deep sleep when you drink alcohol. It's not a big deal if it's like sometimes, but if you're frequently drinking like a moderate amount of alcohol close to bedtime, that's almost certainly negatively impacting your sleep. In terms of marijuana, so this is this gets a little bit more interesting. Marijuana-related products, there are different chemical components that can do different things to your sleep at different dosages. It would be way too complicated to delve in what each can do, but sometimes it can be helpful for relaxing your body and might help you sleep, but sometimes it might actually negatively impact your sleep. So the sort of bird's eye view is don't use weed as a self-medication for sleeping better because it might backfire. And also it's not going to help you actually change the real things underlying your sleep health. 
And that goes for other sleep aids too, you know? So a lot of people use melatonin. With melatonin, you're not really sure what you're getting. I mean, there are studies showing that because it's over the counter and it's not FDA regulated, you might be getting up to five times the dosage of melatonin that is advertised on the bottle. And a lot of people don't know that, you know, in research studies about melatonin, we're using like one milligram, you know? So if you're getting a three milligram tablet, that might be five times, you know, what it is, you might be taking like many multiple times more potent of a melatonin dose than you think you are, or than is needed to give you a good benefit for sleep. And at some dosages, and at different timings, melatonin could backfire too. So, you know, it's, yeah, with sleep aids, it's it's really kind of dicey and tricky. And some people are taking like, you know, I take a half of uh, whatever, you know, for years. And, yeah, yeah. You know, on one hand, they're sleeping. On the other hand, is it really, like you said, is it getting at like where the issue is? Right. And I do want to say that for many people, sleep medications are the best answer. And for most people, they are probably not. So, you know, this is definitely a conversation to have with your healthcare providers, but unfortunately we don't have a big supply of behavioral sleep medicine specialists. So, yeah, you know, it's something that we as a medical field need to figure out. Okay. Thank you. Are there, I'm sure the answer is it varies, but (laughs) are there, is there a difference between side sleeping, back sleeping, stomach sleeping? Does it just vary by person? Is there no ideal? It's just fall asleep. <laughs> it, it varies by person. Whatever is comfortable for you is great. The only thing is that if you are sort of on the verge of having sleep apnea or you have sleep apnea, back sleeping tends to exacerbate the apnea. So if you do have sleep apnea, especially if you're not getting treatment for it, at the very least, try to sleep on your side more. That'll help a little bit. Got it. So anyone who says like, you're supposed to sleep this way, not true. I mean, it it depends. Okay. Got it. What happens when someone's uh, sleep talking or sleepwalking? Yeah. So those are parasomnia symptoms. Parasomnias are this collection of kind of more bizarre sleep symptoms. Um, So this is not uncommon in kids, actually. Lots of kids sleepwalk, sleep talk, and usually they grow out of it by their teens. And sometimes, you know, it'll last into their teens and 20s. But often what's happening is you're sort of half in sleep, half not, where your brain is going through the motions of non-REM deep sleep, but not all the way. So some parts of your brain are acting as if you're awake. This is more likely to happen if you've been drinking alcohol or using other recreational drugs. It's more likely if your circadian rhythm is really messed up or you haven't been sleeping enough recently. And sometimes if you've been experiencing more stressful events recently, you're more likely to have parasomnias too. Interesting. It sort of reminded me of some clients who it's fascinating. They will describe that they'll wake up in like a panic. Mm. It's almost like they're describing, well, I had a panic attack like while I was sleeping or I got mm-hmm. so anxious that I woke up from it. Mm-hmm. So maybe it just speaks to the brain activity that's happening while they're sleeping. Like, what is there... Yeah. So what you're describing is just called a nocturnal panic attack. It is one of those sleep disorder symptoms that, you know, it could be a transient thing due to, you know, drug use or 
stress or sleep deprivation and whatnot. And it could also sometimes happen to people when they have experienced trauma or stress or sometimes physiological things too, like if they're too hot. It's really a lot of different factors that can come together to create a nocturnal panic attack, but that doesn't generally indicate a bona fide sleep disorder, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah, I wish we had more time. There's more. I'm so curious about different cultures about sleep. And also I'm curious about like the history of how we've developed what we've learned about sleep. But unfortunately, we won't get to that today. But what's this will this will be the last question before we wrap up. What's like the new frontier? Like, what are we what are we hoping to learn more of? Where is like the research going? You know, sleep specialists, like what's around the corner of what we're trying to learn and improve when it comes to sleep? I'll say two things real quick. One is sleep health disparities, because a whole lot of research has been done on, you know, Western countries, middle class and upper class, like white people sleep, basically. But we don't know a lot about sleep for everybody else. So the treatments that we have, so for example, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is like the gold standard therapy Mm -hmm. for insomnia, we're not really sure if it works for other people. And to be honest, in my clinical experience, I found that there are a lot of components that need to be modified, you know, for people who are from other racial backgrounds or even socioeconomic backgrounds. So that's one thing we really, really urgently need to work on. The other one is now that the technology surrounding sleep is almost like getting ahead of the science, you know, how do we develop sleep tech responsibly and in a way that's actually helpful to people and not, you know, getting too ahead of the science in a way that backfires. So like, you know, all of these sleep trackers are causing orthosomnia for some folks, you know, how do we prevent that from happening and take advantage of the tech, but avoid some potential pitfalls. So those are the two things I'm looking forward to. Fascinating. Fascinating. Thank you so much. If you could tell people, how could they learn more about sleep if they wanted to? And if you're comfortable, if they wanted to learn more about you or connect with you, how could they do that? Sure. So again, my name is Jade Wu, and you can find out more about me. And also I have some resources for sleep on my website at jadewuphd.com. I'm also on social media. If you Google me, you'll find me. And yeah, I have lots of resources and videos and whatnot. And I have a book coming out in February 2023 called Hello Sleep. This is for folks with insomnia, especially. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. This was really fun. Thanks so much for having me.